Chapter 8, The Message and the Enemy The promise of rescue for mankind had been handed down through generations spanning many thousands of years. As time progressed, the divine information conveyed to Adam and Eve had been expanded to include the promise of both personal, national, and world salvation. The covenant of land and distinguished offspring made with Abraham and the covenant of permanent kingship offered to David combined to fill the future with hope. The regenerate kingdom fills the prophet's imagination. Although the realization of the blessed future will be in and for Israel, the whole world will share in it. The regenerate kingdom will be a channel of blessing to all mankind, even Assyria and Egypt, the two signal representatives of the hostile world empire, will be numbered with Israel as God's people and the work of his hands. You'll find that in Isaiah chapter 33. And that quotation was from Robertson's Regnum Dei. The blessings promised to Abraham encompassed all nations, Genesis 12, verse 3. Yet they centered on Christ as the promised seed, Galatians 3, 16, in whose company all who chose to respond to the call of the gospel about the kingdom could be included in the blessings. The Christ would emerge, according to ancient prophecy, from the tribe of Judah, You'll find that in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, Matthew chapter 2, verse 6, and Revelation 5, verse 5, from which our word Jew is derived, that's to say from the word Judah, and the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, the city of David, Micah 5, verse 2, Matthew 2, verse 6. The promised royal personage would be, quote, a rising star, Numbers 24, 17, a light to the nations, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and Matthew 4, verse 16. The political system organized by Moses and his announcement of Israel's divine commission to be, quote, priests and kings, give us yet another strand of messianic prophecy. Building upon the earlier covenant with Abraham, God said, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you will be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6. Clearly, the function of the nation is intimately related to that of King Messiah, who was also to hold office uniquely as a priest and king. Psalm 110, verses 2 to 4. The New Testament transfers this royal status to a multinational group, the church, who are heirs in association with Christ of the promises and as the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16, 6, 
the church takes on the role assigned to ancient Israel. Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. Compare with that 1 Peter 2, verse 9 and Titus 2, verse 14. The church is thus appropriately designated the true circumcision. Philippians 3, verse 3. That's to say, the true Jews, though composed of both Jews and Gentiles. Though the ancient people of God have suffered a present blindness and have largely rejected their Messiah, there is hope for them also. It is untrue to the New Testament to say that the church has permanently superseded Israel. The church is to become what ideally Israel should have been and what eventually she will again become. But only after, quote, the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Romans 11, verse 25. Prophecy, as expounded by Paul, points to a collective national conversion of a remnant of the people of Israel. We find that in Romans 11, verse 26, where the salvation of Israel is foreseen. This is obviously not the present Israel of the church, since only one verse earlier Paul says that Israel has been temporarily blinded. So prophecy then, as expounded by Paul, points to a collective national conversion of a remnant of the people of Israel consequent upon a terrible time of trouble in the future found in Jeremiah 30, verses 7 to 9. This will awaken their desire for messianic salvation, a last-ditch solution to their troubles. Meanwhile, however, royal office and priesthood are offered to, quote, men from every tribe and people and nation. 1 Peter 2, verse 9, and Revelation 5, verse 10 who, in keeping with the now-expanded original call to Israel, have been constituted, quote, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign as kings upon the earth. That's Revelation 5, verse 10. See also Revelation 1, verse 6, Revelation 2, verse 26, Revelation 3, verse 21, and Revelation 20, verse 6. One might expect this sublimely simple encapsulation of the purpose of the Christian faith to ring out from pulpits constantly. The rich tapestry of messianic material in the Bible has a single aim. The heart of the message is the solution to the ultimate problem of man's mortality, the curse of disobedience. Immortality was to be achieved, as the New Testament writers came to understand, when frail man received from his Maker an imperishable body, animated and driven by divine spirit. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44. Equipped with an immortal body, the Christian would be fit to take up his administrative position with Christ in the kingdom. Revelation 20, verse 6. This information 
had by no means been the common property of all Israelites. The divine secret had been entrusted to Abraham, Moses, David, and all the prophets, who had labored to share their insights with any who were willing to receive them. The Bible is most practical in its analysis of the human problem. It recognizes that death is the universal enemy from which we are utterly powerless to rescue ourselves. In God's mercy, a divine plan for dealing with the problem of inevitable death has been provided. The plan of salvation makes no unreasonable demands on man. It calls upon him first to believe in the one God, the Father, as creator of all things, and secondly, in his agent, the Messiah, Jesus. For it is he who has been chosen to pioneer the way of escape from death. Hebrews 2, verse 10. Having himself gained immortality, Colossians 1, verse 18, it is his task now to assist others struggling for the same goal. Hebrews 2, verses 17 and 18. As the key figure in the divine scheme, he has been selected to head up the entire divine operation. Ephesians 1, verse 10. And this involves not only his present high priesthood over the church, but also his appointment as king of Israel and his future reign with his followers over the entire world. This is to be a reign without end. Luke 1, verses 32 and 33. It forms the subject matter of the Christian good news or gospel of the kingdom of God. The Christian records never for one moment suggest that Jesus actually became king of Israel and the kingdom of God during his ministry in Palestine, though he certainly sought to capture others to the recognition that he was the Messiah, the one destined to be king. On one occasion, an attempt was made to make him king. John 6, verse 15. But Jesus firmly rejected it. On another, the crowds were convinced that the reign of Messiah was about to begin. In the atmosphere of messianic expectation, which belief in Jesus as Messiah had generated, the slightest hint could be taken as a sign of his impending enthronement. On the occasion in question, Jesus had remarked that the repentant Zacchaeus had, quote, this day come to a knowledge of salvation. Luke 19, verse 9. Salvation had always been associated with the establishment of the kingdom, and mention of it was always likely to trigger an upsurge of messianic fervor. The fact that Jesus was also approaching Jerusalem in Luke 19, verse 11, made it practically certain that this must be the great moment for establishing or re-establishing of the throne of David 
in the holy city. This is what the great national charter bestowed in the Davidic covenant had guaranteed. Luke reports that Jesus dealt with the crisis by telling a parable. He compared himself to a nobleman who was to depart to a far country to obtain his kingdom and then return to reign. That's in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 to 27. A simple enough story, and one which would quickly bring the churches together if they believed it. For it confirms in the most elementary terms that the promised reign of the Messiah, the kingdom of God, was not to begin in Jerusalem until Jesus returned to the earth after an unspecified interval of absence and in the light of Jesus' subsequent departure after his resurrection, the disciples were quick to understand that they must transfer their messianic hopes to a point of future time unknown. In other words, to his return in glory. To this great event, the entire early church, naturally enough, looked forward. Paul impressed on his converts the need for a forward-looking messianic outlook. Summarizing the essence of Christianity, he reminded the faithful that they had, and I quote, turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from the heavens whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. The note of judgment is never lacking in Paul's preaching, and the goal is always the return of Jesus from heaven, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 47, and Philippians 3, verse 20. It is never the departure of the saints to heaven. Not for one moment did New Testament Christians suppose that the messianic program had been permanently transferred to a locality away from the earth. It would have been an extraordinary innovation requiring much explanation. To imagine that the throne of David had been permanently removed from Jerusalem to heaven. I note it is true that the New Testament occasionally associates the kingdom with the ascended Christ, but never to the exclusion of the Messiah's future reign on earth. Yet a widespread emphasis on the present so-called reign of Jesus has distorted the messianic picture of him as ruler-designate of a new world order destined to appear on earth. The benefits of the divine program could be gained by the individual believers only on condition that they expressed their faith in the purpose which God was working out. It was clear that humanity had fallen under the curse of rebellion against its creator. An essential element in the divine program for rescue, therefore, was the sacrificial death of the Son of God, the Messiah, for the sins of the world. 
Prior to the crucifixion of Jesus as the sacrificial lamb slain in the divine purpose before the foundation of the world, 1 Peter 1.20, the disciples had found this part of the plan impossible to grasp. Luke chapter 18. They were unable to reconcile a dying Savior with the expected conquering reigning Messiah. Yet contemporary believers have the opposite problem. Looking at the death of Christ as a historical event, they have little difficulty in seeing it at the center of their faith. Their conception of him as destined to conquer the earth and rule the world from Jerusalem is far from clear to them. Yet the Bible is simply filled with assertions that Christ is coming to rule the earth in power. We are constantly urged to be ready for the greatest event of human history, and in the Lord's Prayer, we are to pray for its coming. Sometimes historians prove to be objective readers of the New Testament, but they may fail to commit themselves to belief in what they read. The strain of having to believe that God will carry out what he has promised seems to be too great. We cite one example to illustrate our point. With no intention of disparaging the excellent scholarship of a former learned professor of ecclesiastical history at the University of Edinburgh, Professor McKinnon is typical of a school of theological thought, characteristic also of contemporary attitudes to the Bible, which begins by doubting the accounts of Jesus' birth. The Jewish Christian sources of the birth narratives do not guarantee the historic reality of the miraculous conception. The narratives themselves contain features which tend to raise doubts on this point. In both writers, Matthew and Luke, the belief in it rests on an angelic communication. The stories owe, in fact, much of their charm to this naive angelology. That's from Professor McKinnon's book, The Historic Jesus, written in 1931. So much then for the doctrine of the virginal conception of Jesus. It is apparently not something that modern thinkers could take seriously. But what of the promise that Jesus is to reign over the house of Jacob on David's throne? McKinnon has this to say. In the Lucan version, the Messiah, whose birth the angel proclaims, is depicted in the form of a king who shall reoccupy and hold forever the throne of his father or ancestor David. A restored Jewish kingdom is predicted, and this prediction ultimately proved not only an illusion, but incompatible with the spiritual kingdom which Jesus proclaimed and sought to establish. Here again, the angelic communication, under the influence of current belief, is based on a misconception of historic reality. It is, to say the least, 
rather disconcerting to find what purports to be a revelation from a heavenly source misinterpreting a prophecy and also predicting a restored Davidic kingdom which failed to materialize. Those two are the words of Professor McKinnon in his book, The Historic Jesus of 1931. It must be stated that we have in these remarks the whole problem of the modern rejection of Jesus and his messianic message. Apparently, according to McKinnon and others, if angels exist at all, they are unreliable as messengers. The authority of the Old Testament is ignored as the basis for the divine promise of the restoration of the kingdom of David to Israel. In its place is substituted what commentators have chosen to call a, quote, spiritual kingdom, an attractive term designed to direct attention away from what is historical or geographical and to promote the idea of an abstract interior kingdom only. Finally, the angel Gabriel and Luke, who recorded his message as the foundation of Christian hope, was wrong, according to McKinnon and others. The sort of kingdom Gabriel announced for Jesus on the strength of millennia of messianic prophecy rooted in the seers of Israel never appeared, and so, according to the liberals, unbelievers, it never appeared and so obviously never will. Luke's precious introduction to the faith is thus reduced to a calamitous mistake. It is based on what falsely claims to be a divine revelation, and it turned out to be untrue. With this sort of exposition, so-called, the bottom falls out of Christianity, and we are left to make the best of the wreckage. It is little wonder that pulpits do not resound with excited proclamation of the most extraordinary political event ever to impact our earth. The appearance on earth of a new Davidic empire with Messiah Jesus as its appointed sovereign, exercising a benign government over all peoples and effecting an era of unparalleled peace and prosperity. The prospect of such a government coming on earth is, of course, impossible without the historically witnessed return of Jesus from death by resurrection. Because the whole Jesus story is unacceptable to many, this event, the resurrection, remains the target of skeptics, some amongst them claiming to be Christian teachers. That Jesus is now alive, having been brought to life again by a divine recreation, has come in this century to be much less acceptable even to churchgoers. The Now magazine of December 1979 reports that 50% of those claiming to be church-going members of the Church of England do not believe in an afterlife at all. Indeed, there are many, including professional theologians, 
for whom the resurrection of Jesus as a fact of history is simply incredible. Their view of the world as a, quote, closed continuum forbids them to believe it. Yet they see no contradiction between this agnosticism over the resurrection of Jesus and a profession of the Christian faith. Business as usual may often continue within the walls of Christian churches with no sense of alarm that basic tenets of the biblical faith have been discarded. In the interest of clarifying the faith of the New Testament, we must insist that the early church would have regarded non-belief in the resurrection simply as unbelief. No candidate for baptism would have been acceptable apart from a firm conviction that Jesus had returned in bodily form from death, assumed immortality, and was coming again to rule and reign on the earth. This was the heart and core of the divine message, the gospel. Without it, the hope for the salvation of the human race would be reduced to an empty dream. There would, in fact, be no good news to tell. It is well known that Paul was ready to abandon his entire mission if it could be shown that Christ had not been brought back to life by resurrection. As Paul put it to his converts at Corinth, quote, If Christ has not been raised from the dead, we have nothing to preach and you have nothing to believe. That's a quotation from Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, the Good News Bible. Satan was well aware that belief in the Savior and his gospel message of salvation opened for the believer the door to the blessings of immortality. Satan understood that the prerequisite for the incorporation into the divine scheme for the rescue of mankind from death was an understanding and acceptance of the scheme itself. That understanding was gained by contact with the information contained in the good news message about the kingdom, the gospel which Jesus and the apostles labored to proclaim and for which they died as martyrs for the cause of Christ. The process of rescue could therefore be most effectively frustrated by tampering with the essential information. A new set of so-called facts, calling itself the gospel, must be introduced in place of the real ones, and faith in these must be induced. I note that Paul encountered this basic strategy among the Corinthians. See 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4. In this way, a hope of salvation would be offered as before, but because of the subtle twist which had been introduced into the message, the proposition put before the potential convert would no longer correspond to the terms laid down by the divine architect. 
The essence of the satanic plan would be to persuade the seeker for immortality that he had complied with the divine instructions, while these, in fact, would be hidden from him. He would be offered a distorted good news, which would impede his progress towards salvation. A brilliant analysis of the devil's method was given by Jesus in his celebrated parable of the sower, found in Matthew 13, 18 to 23, Mark chapter 4, verses 13 to 20, and Luke chapter 8, verses 11 to 15. The devil recognizes the kingdom message as the essential divine tool operating to bring about salvation. He must therefore find ways of obscuring it or obstructing its communication to the human mind. I quote, When anyone hears the message about the kingdom, the devil comes and snatches away the message sown in his heart so that he may not believe it and be saved. That's Matthew chapter 13, verse 19, and Luke 8, verse 12. These are verses which we ignore at our peril. Churches would be well advised to ensure that whatever else they do, the preaching of the saving good news about the kingdom is always at the forefront of their activity. The central truth of the good news about the kingdom of God was that the promised Savior, the Messiah, was ultimately to assume the reins of world government and to introduce an endless theocracy. A share in that government, as a co-administrator with the Messiah, was offered as the gracious reward of all who chose to become involved with Jesus' mission. As long as language is read straightforwardly and words retain their dictionary definitions, these facts will be found stated in the plainest of terms and with complete unanimity by all the New Testament writers. Abraham was heir to the world. Romans 4 verse 13, the faithful were to inherit the earth or the land. Matthew 5 verse 5, they were to administer the world as rulers. Revelation 2 verse 26, Revelation 3 verse 21, Revelation 20 verse 6, and 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2. They were to reign with Christ, to become kings with him on the earth. Revelation 5 verse 10. Language has no clearer way of conveying information about the future of the church. It cannot say more distinctly than the Bible does that Christians are called to be the future rulers of the earth. The disintegration of the messianic vision. Division and loss of dynamic among the churches is traceable above all to the loss of that vital central message so relevant to our distracted planet. It is a loss of living faith and a loss of hope. 
It is also a defection from the Church's high calling to be the Messianic Fellowship in training now with the hope of fuller service to humanity in the age of the coming kingdom. That is not to say that faith and hope have not been expressed, but they have been stunted by the introduction of a very different goal, one quite foreign to the early believers. What to Jesus and the apostles would have appeared as a meaningless prospect, utterly incompatible with the Hebrew tradition, came to replace the hope offered by the divine message. The work of the serpent, the devil, led to a wholesale shift away from the biblical hope embodied in the good news, and it occurred soon after the death of the apostles. The message was dealt a lethal blow when strange notions about an afterlife as a disembodied spirit in heaven became confused with the Christian hope of resurrection to immortality in the kingdom on earth at the return of Jesus. The serpent revived his original favorite lie and worked hard to poison the church with it. The success of his campaign may be witnessed everywhere in contemporary churches, especially at the preaching of funerals. It was Satan, subtle master of the half-truth, who soon after the death of the apostles began a massive propaganda campaign to divert attention away from the hope contained in the good news of the kingdom, as well as in the Abrahamic and Davidic covenants. And this was a diversion to an objective which has gained almost universal acceptance as one of the first principles of the Christian faith. A powerful influx of Greek believers into the church led to a radical shift in thinking amongst those desiring to attach themselves to the name of Christ. The result was a theological takeover on a massive scale. The name of Christ was appropriated to a system of belief hardly recognizable as Christian by New Testament standards. The world of Greek and Roman philosophy invaded the church so successfully that the fundamentally different thought system on which the Hebrew biblical theology was founded was forced out of the church. While the pure message of the kingdom and the Messiah, biblical messianism, was eclipsed, the church continued ostensibly as the legitimate successors to the apostles. But was the Christ of this transformed ecclesiastical system really Jesus of Nazareth, herald of the kingdom of God? If, as Archbishop Temple maintained, the kingdom of God message has figured very little in the history of the church, one may be permitted to wonder how far the authentic voice of Jesus has been stifled. Perhaps more attention should be paid 
to those scholars who have tried to sound the alarm. From Cambridge comes the revealing observation of Don Cupid that in the second century, quote, a new religion was developed to replace the original faith. That's from Professor Cupid's book, The Debate About Christ. Professor Cupid then notes that Jesus and his early followers' emphasis on the future kingdom poses, quote, some very awkward questions to orthodox believers, which are, quote, too often quietly ignored. That too is from Professor Cupid's book, The Debate About Christ. Often also, theories have been espoused in order to, quote, excuse Jesus from what are thought to be his mistaken hopes for the kingdom which never came. In every case, we are witnessing a defection from belief in the messianic promises guaranteed by the covenants with Abraham and David and confirmed by Jesus. It is impossible to believe, in a New Testament sense, if one does not subscribe with passionate conviction to the future reappearance of Jesus from heaven to inaugurate the era of messianic peace on earth, for which purpose he is the appointed Messiah. Such an affirmation witnesses to faith in the God of the covenants made with Abraham and David, the God of Jesus, that is, who made those covenants. If messianism is no longer a concept acceptable, to modern scholars and churchgoers, but belongs only on what one New Testament scholar calls the sectarian fringe. That was quotation from J.A.T. Robinson in his The Human Face of God of 1973. And, and I quote, if no one seriously looks for the Messiah, who will be the single solution to all the world's problems, spiritually or politically. This is not, I say, the fault of our New Testament documents. The problem lies elsewhere, namely in the church's abandonment of the Hebrew vision of a restored paradise on earth, consequent upon the return of Jesus to assume his royal office. The cause of the shift away from Jesus and his messianic message is not hard to pinpoint. Canon Guj's observation needs to be heard again. I quote, When the Greek and Roman mind came to dominate the church, there occurred a disaster from which we have never recovered, neither in belief nor in practice. That was from H.L. Googe's Essays on Judaism and Christianity, cited by H.J. Schoenfield in his book, The Politics of God. In fact, Dr. Robinson, who does not see Messianism as something to be believed in anymore, 
describes the whole demise of New Testament views of the future. He speaks of, and I quote, the remarkable transformation which overtook Christian eschatology almost as soon as the ink of the New Testament was dry, and it affects the center of interest or pivotal point of the entire subject. For in the New Testament, the point around which hope and interest revolve is not the moment of death at all, but the day of the parousia, or appearance of Christ in the glory of his kingdom. The center of interest and expectation continued right through the New Testament period to be focused upon the day of the Son of Man and the triumph of his kingdom in a renovated earth. It was the reign of the Lord Jesus with all his saints that engaged the thoughts and prayers of Christians. The hope was social and it was historical. But as early as the second century AD, there began a shift in the center of gravity which was to lead by the Middle Ages to a very different doctrine. In later thought, it is the hour of death which becomes decisive. That's from J.T. Robinson's book, In the End God. The root of the problem, spiritual versus physical. That departure from the biblical blueprint is all too evident in today's fragmented church and particularly in its various and mutually exclusive teachings about the future. To bring order out of chaos, the kingdom of God must be defined again as Jesus understood it. The land promise, which is now conspicuous by its absence from books claiming to explain New Testament Christianity, and which Jesus makes equivalent to the promise of the kingdom, must be reinstated at the heart of the gospel message. The bringing together of land and kingdom reunites the Hebrew Bible with Christianity after a long period of trying to divorce Jesus from his national Jewish heritage. The Master has not abandoned the Old Testament revelation. His hope is firmly rooted in the promise of a renewal of Palestine. He can say, meaning the same thing, either, quote, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, in Matthew 5, verse 3, or blessed are the meek, they shall have the earth or the land as their inheritance, Matthew 5, verse 5. Jesus quotes here from the 37th Psalm, which five times assures the faithful of a place in the land forever. I quote, he will exalt you to master the land. Psalm 37 verse 34 in the New English Bible. All Christian endeavor, according to Jesus, who echoes the Hebrew Bible, converges on the ancient land promise made to Abraham, 
who will be resurrected to enjoy what he had seen only with the eye of faith. The tribes of Israel will be regathered in the land. You'll find that in Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30, Matthew chapter 19, verse 28, and compare with that Psalm 122, verse 5, which speaks of, quote, the thrones of David set for judgment in Jerusalem. This is what the Hebrew prophets had foreseen. Jeremiah 30, verse 3, and so on. And Jesus and his followers will preside over a renewed society, establishing and maintaining a just order. Isaiah 32, verse 1. That commission is divinely authorized and represents the heart of the new covenant. Just as Moses declared the words of the first covenant and then ratified them with the blood of animals, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, Exodus 24, verses 7 and 8, so Jesus, in his teaching ministry, proclaims the words of the new covenant. Matthew reminds us of this by dividing his book into five sections, reminiscent of the five books of Moses, each ending with the words, when Jesus had finished all these sayings. Jesus sums up the content of his gospel with a magnificent promise given at the Last Supper. Just as my Father covenanted with me to give me a kingdom, I covenant with you to give you royal office and you will sit on twelve thrones to administer the twelve tribes of Israel. That's a quotation from Luke chapter 22, verses 28 to 30. The king then went to his death on behalf of the sins of the world, shedding his own blood to ratify the covenant, the covenant of kingship, which constituted the disciples ministers of state in the coming kingdom. The terms of the covenant are the words of Jesus, which we must believe and obey. His blood brings the covenant into permanent effect. So, Beasley Murray says, and I quote, The connection of thought between the eschatological covenant ratified in the giving of the body and blood of Jesus, Luke 22, verses 19 and 20, and the covenanting to give the kingdom to the disciples, in verse 29, is especially striking. While the term covenant does not appear in verse 29, the verb viatiteme, which means to dispose by covenant, is closely related to it. That's from Beasley Murray's book, Jesus and the Kingdom of God. Jesus therefore said, I appoint the kingdom to you by covenant as my Father appointed it to me by covenant. The kingdom of God, a future hope, is simply the land promised as an inheritance in perpetuity to Abraham, 
his seed, and the faithful. Galatians 3 verse 29. An alien and obviously anti-Semitic influence in theology has made the so-called Jewish messianic hope for the future of the earth seem strange to Gentile Christians, whose beliefs owe so much to the post-biblical influence of Greek ways of thinking. The Hellenizing of the original faith creates an enormous problem for Bible readers. They're liable to make a considerable nonsense of what they read by starting with certain well-entrenched presuppositions about the nature of man and his destiny, the nature of God, and the nature of faith. Theology must be done, quote, from behind. That's to say, by starting with the presuppositions held by Jesus and his early followers who knew nothing at all of later Greek creeds. If the churches are to unite, it will be on the basis of agreeing to abandon a long-standing tradition of allowing denominational theology to dictate exposition of the Bible. And this is an effective way are preventing the real message of Scripture from being heard. Specifically, the early believers knew nothing of the distinction which many draw between a, quote, spiritual kingdom and a political kingdom. When Jesus reappeared after his resurrection, he was equipped with a spiritual body, which was, however, palpable and material though of a different substance from our present human flesh, which belongs to the first creation. Jesus was recognized as the same individual he had been prior to death. He was no phantom. He ate and drank and conversed, Acts 10 verse 41. He is the example of a glorified human person, the model of those who expect to be resurrected to immortality as he was. The resurrected, however, would not disappear into the skies. Jesus' understanding of the future, like all his teaching, is messianic and related to the earth. I quote, Many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, but the children of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness outside where there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. That's a quotation from Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 and 12. The kingdom of God is geographically situated. It will be located in Jerusalem which Jesus called, quote, the city of the great king. Matthew 5, verse 35. It is not beyond space and time. It belongs to the coming age, and the life of that coming age is the goal placed before the believer. It's a place to which the faithful come, and when it comes, it will introduce, quote, the global society of the future. 
Hebrews 2, verse 5. An ingrained post-biblical but false spirituality has led to the bizarre tendency of expositors to castigate the followers of Jesus when they obviously subscribed to Jewish Old Testament messianic hopes. It does not seem to occur to these commentators that Jesus had taught the apostles to revere the Hebrew Bible and had instilled in them the hope of the restoration of the throne of David. Thus, after the crucifixion, Jesus' disciples pathetically complain, quote, our hope had been that he was the one to set Israel free. And this expressed their shattered conviction that Jesus was the Messiah. Luke 24, verse 21. They demonstrate an impeccable understanding of Jesus' purpose. What they had yet to learn was that there would be a time for the development of the present evil age. Galatians 1, verse 3. A ripening of evil prior to judgment associated with the future advent of the kingdom. They did not see how the kingdom could come now that the Messiah was no more, not yet persuaded of the resurrection and the future return of Jesus to the earth. They imagine that the divine program has failed. Their dashed hopes are immediately revived when the risen Jesus makes himself known. He then gives them six weeks of further instruction on the kingdom of God, at the end of which it is most natural that they should ask, I quote, Has the time now come for you to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's their question in Acts 1 verse 6. Again, the question is the right one and has the full approval of their teacher. They are cautioned only in regard to the time of the great event, which even he had said he did not know. You'll find that in Mark 13, verse 32. None of this is in any way difficult to understand once it is recognized that the Bible is a messianic document and Jesus is the Messiah of Hebrew prophecy. That is the key to the riddle of the New Testament, which becomes a most obscure document when read with a Gentile, non-Messianic bias. Church tradition, which presents Jesus as a, quote, spiritual Messiah only, who never actually rules the world from Jerusalem, erects an effective barrier between us and the apostles. Only when the scale of the disaster to which Canon Gouge pointed, only when this is fully recognized, will steps be taken to repair the damage. The first step towards recovery lies in the abandonment of a cherished notion that what is spiritual cannot also be social, political, or related to the earth. The fact is that the kingdom of God of which Jesus spoke was spiritual 
and at the same time visible and material. It was both particular and Jewish, as well as universal in its scope. The restored kingdom of David meant a new political structure for the world, with its headquarters in Jerusalem and extending its influence across the globe. Jerusalem, in the mind of Jesus, was not a location for departed spirits, but an international metropolis, capital of a renewed society on earth. Once the kingdom idea is rooted again in the soil where it originated, it will become clear that, quote, kingdom does not mean an abstract rule in the hearts of men and women, nor does it mean an ethereal, quote, heaven for the dying, a place for disembodied souls. The kingdom of God is to be a literal kingdom with its divinely appointed sovereign sitting on a throne in a geographical location. According to the Hebrew mind, the kingdom was in the hands of the sons of David, 2 Chronicles 13, verse 8, with an assured future when the Messiah ascended his throne. This is the whole point of Jesus and his mission as herald of the kingdom. He came, in fact, recruiting followers who would believe God's messianic plan and in himself as God's executive. Hence Jesus' opening salvo as he inaugurated his ministry. Quote, the kingdom of God, promised as you well known to Israel forever, is coming. Believe it. Believe in this gospel or good news about the kingdom. Align yourself with the hope of Israel, which, with the appearance of the Messiah, is sure to be realized. Be baptized for the remission of your sins. Such is the very clear implication of Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, which provides a programmatic summary statement of Jesus' Christian agenda. He is the herald of the greatest good news, which the nation, if they had been spiritually attuned to God's voice through Jesus, they would have accepted joyfully. When Israel failed to heed the message, the same gospel invitation to the kingdom went out to all the nations. This does not mean that the kingdom was postponed. It meant that a divinely planned extension of the present era allowed for the same kingdom invitation to go on through many generations and to all nations. Its call to repentance is the same today as always. It has never been superseded, despite various popular theological systems which have attempted to tell us otherwise. Part of the offense of Jesus' message was the delay of the coming of the kingdom. The death of the one claiming to be Messiah placed too great a strain on the faith of many who heard Jesus preach. Their faith collapsed, and even Jesus' closest followers faltered. 
when he announced that he must first go to Jerusalem and die. What an absurd contradiction, when the Messiah was supposed to conquer the world, but God had his own time frame for the accomplishment of the promises. To counteract the crushing disappointment of a dying Messiah, a supernatural vision of the future kingdom was given to the loyal few. You'll find that in Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 to 9, Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9, and Luke chapter 9, verses 28 to 36. Jesus announced that some standing in his presence would see the kingdom in their lifetime. Matthew 16, verse 28. Six days later, according to Matthew 17, verse 1, they were privileged to see into the future and to glimpse the kingdom in advance of its manifestation. Jesus was seen in this vision with his face shining like the sun in the company of Moses and Elijah. Matthew 17, verse 2. This was exactly the condition to be expected of those who at the end of the age will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Matthew 13, verse 40 and 43. When Peter recalls this, quote, transfiguration in 2 Peter 1, verses 16 to 18, he describes it as a preview of the future coming of Jesus to establish his kingdom at the future parousia, or second coming. What the disciples witnessed was a scene in which Moses and Elijah appeared in glorified, that's to say resurrected bodies, talking to the glorified Jesus. The scene was set on the earth. It was no ghostly, quote, heaven, the dwelling of departed disembodied spirits. Such an idea, now so cherished and reinforced ceaselessly by funeral addresses and popular piety, was absolutely foreign to their understanding of the nature of man and of death. The intense vision of the future kingdom instilled into the early Christians by Jesus and the apostles cannot be revived as long as we insist on comforting the bereaved with the promise that their relatives have survived as souls without bodies. To do so simply contradicts the biblical hope of resurrection. It directs attention away from the messianic kingdom to be introduced when Jesus arrives to raise the dead and occupy the restored throne of David. To this latter idea, Bible readers should direct their attention. This will require shedding a considerable amount of traditional baggage, above all, the false distinction between a, quote, spiritual and political kingdom in the teaching of Jesus. Our point was made tellingly by P.E. Moore writing from Princeton University in 1924. He was discussing Jesus' call to repentance in view 
of the coming kingdom. I quote, the straightforward understanding of Christ's eschatological, that's to say, having to do with the kingdom in the future, Christ's eschatological meaning has not been and still is not acceptable to a tender so-called orthodoxy for the sufficient reason that the promised event did not take place. And so our commentaries are full of attempts to explain away perfectly clear and concrete statements by allegorizing them into a prophecy of the church which would gradually extend itself over the world. That's from P.E. Moore's book, The Christ of the New Testament, written in 1924. In plain terms, then, the church, embarrassed by the failure of the kingdom to arrive, decided to claim that the church is in fact a kingdom which will gradually conquer the world. This theory would do away with the need for the return of Jesus and the restoration of the Davidic theocracy. P.E. Moore goes on to say that this substitution of our own theory for the gospel of Christ, quote, will not do. Anyone who has read the apologetic literature must say that the methods of modern criticism, as to say analysis, and exposition of the Bible are often beyond his comprehension. End of quotation from P.E. Moore. P.E. Moore then traces the idea of the Messianic kingdom through an unbroken line from the prophets to Jesus and Paul. I quote, From the beginning, when Amos uttered his warning, Prepare to meet your God, O Israel, to the days when St. Paul comforted the Christians who grieved for those who had died before the expected appearance of the Lord, the note of immediacy is the same. Always the reckoning is at hand, yet always it is to come as a surprise. The day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come on them. That's a quotation from Paul. Paul was merely repeating the eschatology, that's to say the expectation of the future kingdom, the eschatology of the prophets. And between him and them, Christ uttered exactly the same warning. The kingdom was approaching with the stealth of a robber. It was by anticipation here and now. Yet the actual day of Jehovah no one knew, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son himself. Only the Father. The importance of that continuity cannot be too much emphasized. That's a further quotation from the book by P.E. Moore. Moore insists that Jesus must be linked to his heritage. Jesus' eschatology 
was simply that of his country and his age. But that link has been severed by the church and Jesus is made to float free from the vision of the prophets of Israel. This uprooting of Jesus from the soil of Israel has been achieved by writers who make much of a supposed, and I quote, opposition between the popular hope of a political kingdom and Christ's insistence on a spiritual reign of God in the hearts of men. There was no such opposition as theology loves to draw. The kingdom which Jesus preached was at once political and spiritual, and that unquestionably was the form in which it came to him from the molding hands of prophecy. End of quotation from P.E. Moore. Professor Moore makes another fundamentally important observation. The kingdom which Jesus announced was not only both spiritual and political, it was also national and universal. Such exactly was the Bible's vision. The kingdom would be administered from Jerusalem and extend its godly influence to the ends of the earth. This is precisely what Isaiah and all the prophets meant by the kingdom of God. It will happen in the final days that the mountain of Yahweh's house will rise higher than the mountains and tower above the heights. Then all the nations will stream to it, and many peoples will come to it and say, Come, let's go up to the mountain of Yahweh, to the house of the God of Jacob, so that he may teach us his ways, so that we may walk in his paths. For the law will issue from Zion, and the word of God from Jerusalem. Then he will judge between the nations and arbitrate between many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into sickles. Nation will not lift sword against nation. No longer will they learn how to make war. That's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. Here truly is good news for the world. International disarmament, genuine and lasting, is possible only under the kingdom of God, the return and the rule of the Messiah, to be assisted by the faithful of all the ages. Such is the bright hope of Scripture, and for that day Jesus urged his followers to pray always, Thy kingdom come on earth. Read in this light, the New Testament is a perfectly coherent document, logically structured and internally consistent. Its message from start to finish is, The kingdom is coming, Prepare now. Christ at his return will confer immortality upon you if you trust and obey him. 
and give you authority to reorganize the world with him along godly lines. The New Testament is a commentary on this underlying messianic theme and an exhortation designed to bring believers to their goal. For this picture of the kingdom and the work of the Messiah, we have not only the witness of a mass of scriptural texts, it's confirmed by distinguished experts on Judaism. I quote, The Jewish Messiah is a redeemer strong in physical power and in spirit, who in the final days will bring redemption, economic and spiritual, to the Jewish people, and along with this, eternal peace, material prosperity, and ethical perfection to the whole human race. The Messiah will redeem Israel from exile and servitude, and he will redeem the whole world from oppression, suffering, war, and above all, the heathenism and everything which it involves. That's a quotation from Josef Klausner in his book, The Messianic Idea in Israel of 1956. Jesus' gospel announcement is readily comprehensible in the light of the New Testament background. That Jesus issued in the gospel a quote last call to the coming kingdom is evident it is evident too that by kingdom he did not refer to an interior quote kingdom of the heart central to jesus preaching and teaching was the imminent coming of the kingdom of god god himself will establish his dominion at a time he ordains and will make an end of all the kingdoms of the world. God's kingdom will come without man's assistance. It will not result from human effort and endeavor. It will come suddenly, quote, as the lightning which lightens out of one part under heaven and shines to the other part. Luke 17, verse 24. At the same time, there will be signs that the kingdom of God is near. These signs should be heeded. From them, men are to recognize, quote, that summer is near. That's in Mark 13, verses 28 and following. And that quotation is from Johannes Schneider in his article, Jesus Christ his life and ministry, written in 1975. For the advent of that Redeemer to take up his position as the first successful world governor, the New Testament longs on page after page. By a stroke of genius, Luke, a Christian historian who knew how to teach with an economy of words, makes the kingdom the subject of the disciples' eager inquiry as they bid farewell to the risen Jesus. Luke provides a confirmation of biblical messianism 
in a verse which can correct centuries of misunderstanding. Until recently, churches have not been willing to yield to its precious testimony. To that part of the story of God's plan and an account of its frustration by misguided Gentile commentary, we now turn our attention. 